one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Sarah here, and welcome to the Squiggly Career Podcast. And this week's episode, number 66, is something a little bit different. So regular listeners will know that as well as the podcast, Helen and I have a business called Amazing If. And Amazing If came from a very informal chat and coffee one day where we were talking about our careers, how they become really squiggly, and also how lots of people were not enjoying what they were doing. And our kind of phrase that really fueled, I guess, our business was, wouldn't it be amazing if we could make work better for everyone? And so that's a mission that we're really passionate about and we know we're not the only ones. And so we thought after 66 episodes, occasionally a hiatus from listening to Helen and I might be quite a nice break. And so once a month, we're going to have a guest on the podcast and that'll always be someone who we think is really kind of furthering the cause in terms of making work better for everyone. Our first guest is someone I'm so excited about. You will hear us recommend Bruce Daisley's podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, loads of times. Not because we don't listen to loads of podcasts, but because it's genuinely that good. If you want to listen to amazing guests, world-leading experts in their field, it's the, absolutely the place to go. And almost I'm disappointed if I have to listen to it while I'm walking because I want to be making notes. So I'm so delighted to have Bruce with us. So hey, Bruce. Hello there. That's very nice. Oh, and also it's lovely to be in the same room. So lots of you will know Helen and I often record these remotely, but Bruce and I are sitting in a very lush, lovely, posh studio, yeah, doing it properly, which uh, feels only appropriate given today we're here to talk about Bruce's new book, which is The Joy of Work, out yesterday. And what we're going to do is talk a bit about what he's found out through the book, why he wrote the book, and as always, try and make it really actionable and something that everybody listening can do something with today. Obviously, you should still buy the book, but perhaps this will be quite a useful pricey for you. So Bruce, let's kick off. I had the book yesterday as I was getting into my car with my toddler and I was thinking I'm going to read it while he goes to sleep. So I was being efficient with my time and my neighbour caught me and she saw the title of the book and she looked really worried. And she said to me, oh, are you not enjoying your job anymore? Do you need some like more joy in your work? So I had to sort of spend a couple of minutes reassuring her, you know, that I was okay. But I wondered, (laughs) um, is that the reason you've written the book? Because you think lots of people do need a bit more joy at work? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking... How you name these things is a fascinating challenge in itself. I think the thing that was unequivocal for me, and it's what I guess inspired your discussion, was work's just way less fun than it used to be. Yeah. And 
I don't think that's like an old curmudgeonly attitude. I think there was a fabulous article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about millennial burnout. And I know the phrase millennial isn't helpful because mm. it's pretty much <laughs> anyone under 40. But it was... Yes, um, still count. <laughs> it was someone describing this observable situation where a lot of people are working all the time and they're, they're working late into the evening and they're trying to advance and get on and try and in some way get themselves onto a, a sort of life career ladder. Yeah. And the flip side of that is that they're rendered incapable of getting anything done for themselves at the weekend. And that's burnout. That's that's yeah. like a really clear manifestation of burnout. But we just never call it that. And I think the thing that for me was really interesting was that all of us find ourselves working longer than ever before and punctuating that episode of Luther with just a quick check of email. And <laughs> no, just... Luther is way too scary. To yeah. like, the reason I'd be checking my email is because I'm terrified. Yeah, distracting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But, you know, finding ourselves just quickly logging on on a night out. Yeah. You know, we're not just checking texts in the toilet when we go to the uh, the bathroom <laughs> with friends. We're checking emails. We're, all of us find ourselves somehow in this cortisol-drenched state of anxiety. Yeah. And I was just... Actually, I'll take a step back. The reason why I did it is that I think I saw the people around me. I work at Twitter, and, and I saw the people around me broken by work. And we've right. done, like, a series of redundancies, and everyone just looked... I think, dead behind the eyes. But more than anything, I think I was projecting how I was feeling onto them. So they probably looked bad, but because I was feeling especially yeah. bad, I was seeing them for worse than they were. And I was just thinking, you know, all of us are presented with this prospect of working another 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not sure I can keep doing this. Yeah. And you know when you have that wanderlust, that sense of maybe... I need to do something else. In fact, I investigated. So here's here's some stats for you. You know, a lot of people think maybe I'd be happier making organic bread. Yeah. Maybe I'd be happier working. Oh, on a I do farm. remember. This is farming, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So people who work on a farm. This is my boyfriend. He's right, like okay. maybe he's an accountant. Maybe I'd be happier if I was a gardener. Yeah, that's it. People just think maybe I'll be happy. Well, people who work on a farm, they are four out of ten happy when people do. Not a great survey. then. Not great. It's not even little lovely dog. Yeah. You know. That country air, no, you're not going to be happier than you are if you make your current job work better. So I think that was why I was interested. I was like, we kind of really loved, you know, everyone who does a job, there was a moment when you accepted that job where you were thrilled with the happiness. Yeah, yeah. And so we know that there's a version of that job that really excites us, but can we get back to loving it? And I think that was my start point. That is interesting. It'd be interesting to measure how happy you are when you start a job. Let's say you're going, I'm nine out of ten excited about the prospect of the job and how that number changes over time and what would it take for that number to stay the same. Yeah, that's right. And you sometimes see it's described as a work honeymoon. They say that um, when employers hire someone and when someone takes a job, there's normally 10 to 12 months of mutual feeling of we're really happy about right. this. And both it's like a relationship. Si- yeah, that, and both <laughs> sides tend to wane in their enthusiasm after 12 months. So how Ooh. could you keep that enthusiasm? Do you know how long I've been in my current job? Exactly 12 months. Right, here we go. But to be clear, I'm not waning in my enthusiasm, <laughs> just in case anyone's listening. <laughs> but that's it. So I was interested. What are the ways that we could keep us in love with our jobs? Yeah. And, you know, it's almost a bit embarrassing. In the same way that no one at school says, I love school, because 
Yeah, deep, it's not cool. Deeply uncool. Yeah. There's something about jobs as well where quite often we're a little bit embarrassed to tell our friends we love our job. Yeah. Or if a friend tells you they love their job, you sort of like, all right, wind it in a bit. Yeah. And yeah. so we're just embarrassed especially to share Especially if you're British, maybe. That's right. I think especially if you're British. Got to play it cool. Yeah. And so you've divided the book into, so there's 30 actions in total and three different sections, recharge, sync, and then buzz. So what I've done, because I thought it'd be interesting for everyone listening, is for each of those sections, I've picked one of the actions that I wish I was doing, but I don't do today. And one of the actions that I actually do do, and I thought we would kind of talk about how has that worked in the research and people you've talked to, like why are these things impactful and what could people listening do for themselves? Because yeah. that's what I was really struck about with the book. You've not written the book, particularly for leaders or for people in a certain position. The idea is that these 30 actions are often relatively small things in themselves, but that could add up to quite a lot of yeah. joy by the end. And it's worth saying, so the, the reason why there's those sections there, I'm obsessed with workplace culture. I'm, I'm obsessed with, sometimes I've worked in wonderful places, really well-resourced places, and they haven't felt as special. I haven't felt the connection. Right. I haven't felt that I wanted to work as hard as in other places that maybe have had less resource. And so I was interested in, firstly, all of us being responsible for work culture. Yeah. Can we all contribute to it? Because great places I've worked have existed despite the boss rather than because <laughs> the boss. So how can each of us contribute and create work culture? So th that was the start point there. But secondly, I've just observed that a lot of people say, oh, yeah, we've tried to fix our culture at our place. Mm. But And so I was with a charity last week and they said to me, we're trying to improve the culture here. The problem is when we sent an invite for the three-hour meeting, about culture <laughs> people were just like I can't be bothered to do this yeah. and so that the was the irony my, a three hour meeting <laughs> so we'll that, was, to meetings. that was my entry point I was like okay we all want to fix culture but maybe we need to fix ourselves before we fix culture so the reason why it's stack ranked like that recharge first is that half of all office workers are in a state that would be regarded as burnout where your judgment's impaired, your energy levels are lower than you'd want, yeah. you don't feel creative, and you can't get people to feeling like they're in a dynamic, fast-moving culture until that people are feeling less broken themselves. So, so that's the reason why I sort of yeah. categorised it like that. You know, turning up saying you're going to fix the culture around here without re-energising people is destined to fail. And I think culture is one of those words where it feels quite ethereal and kind of what does it really mean? And I always think it's just the way things are done around here. Yeah. And actually all it is is a collection of individuals and teams taking actions. That's right. And so if you try, I worry about sometimes trying to do the top-down culture thing, although I believe it's very important that as an organisation everybody takes culture seriously, how much can you impose versus how much do you sort of need to enable? Yeah. I always find that kind of dynamic quite exactly interesting. Exactly that. And that's why those big cultural initiatives, if a CEO starts at a company, if the company's more than 200 people, the CEO effectively can't really do anything by sending no. an email or calling people into a presentation. It needs to be built in little teams. And mm -hmm. so, you know, my feeling is the unit of culture is about individuals and teams. Yeah. And if you build little teams of 10 or 12 people whose culture has changed, then that can contribute to something greater than that. But they're just mandating that something... You will act in this way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you're going to struggle to do it. So let's start with recharge. So the action in recharge that I read about that I want to have in my life really quite desperately was this thing called monk mode. So tell us what monk mode is. It comes from some work by a guy called Cal Newport. And to be honest, Cal Newport's work about deep work 
is not completely new thinking. It's sort of like connected to the idea of flow, that we mm. get into a state where time slips away, we feel immersed in a project. And all of us can access flow quite often through, if we find ourselves drawing or colouring in, colouring in is a classic example of flow. In fact, one of the interesting things that someone said to me is that the reason why cycling is so popular with a lot of people is because you get into a state of physical flow. You're just oh, doing a mechanical movement and we get so much joy as living organisms. Yeah. We get so much joy from being in a state of flow. But we quite often, the way that work has been constructed is we often don't access flow through things like that. So we work is so staccato, you know. Yeah. We work on something for three minutes and then we're interrupted and three minutes and then we're interrupted. And actually that sort of damages the way that our cognition works to some extent. So if you can get into a state of deep work, if you can get into a state of flow, firstly, you'll be astonished how productive it is, how much work it actually gets done. But secondly, we reach a state where work feels a bit more satisfying. Probably one of the leading experts on workplace culture and psychology is a woman called Teresa Amable. And she said a good day at work is when we've made progress in something meaningful. And she came that's up... nice, that's a lovely that's definition. Right. And, yeah. and, and she says, so consequently, her notion of good work is progress, 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 progress. How are we going to make progress? Yeah. And what she found was that the construction of modern work is the enemy of progress. We do something and someone says, just a quick one, can you do this? <laughs> Open plan office is being yeah. one of the contributions. Quite often we find, on a subjective level, we find ourselves saying, I get so much work done when I come in early. Often not in the evenings because people swing by and chat to you. But when I come in early, I get work done. So we're all recognising that the lack of interruption can be incredibly powerful. And I think then the critical thing becomes... How can you access that? Now, the challenge, of course, for most of us is that we get 140 emails a day and yeah. we're in open plan environments and we have the average British worker 16 hours of meetings a week. So it's really difficult to get that. But what Cal Newport says is he gives a very simple access point to it. And that's why don't you do a monk mode morning? So monk mode where no interruptions, no distractions, no talk, no real stimulus of any sort. And twice a week, maybe on Tuesday and Thursday, you don't come into the office till you've done 60 to 90 minutes of uninterrupted work. Yeah. So I think most of us would say we can accommodate that in our working schedules and we can get it done. My colleague, David Wilding, he yeah, does I this thing. Yeah, I know David. OK, well, yeah. he does this thing where he lives... Miles he li away, doesn't Miles he? Like away. I mean, two yeah, hours yeah. journey away. Two yeah. hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. And he appraised himself and he said, you know what, I'm getting up and I'm getting a seven o'clock train and I'm standing all the way to London and it's crammed yeah, and I'm, I'm getting... There's no Wi-Fi on the train. So I'm literally... Sure. I'm, I'm doing two hours of scrolling through my phone. But I've noticed if I get the train 45 minutes to an hour later, I can get a table and I can sit down and I can open my laptop. And because there's no Wi-Fi, I can't do anything sort of email related. But I'm writing a presentation that I've been looking at doing for a week or I'm thinking about that article that I read last week and thinking about how can I adapt it into an idea about something. And he found that escape. And so for me, it's just a really interesting thing. When we try and understand how cognition works, then we can try and understand and adapt the way we work around it. Yeah. I was trying to think, when have I last felt flow? Because that's often quite helpful is to mm. think of yourself and then think about what you produced in terms of going back to progress as a result. And as our listeners will know, we're sort of a year behind Bruce in that we're just writing our book at the moment. And actually, I found to successfully write a book, you have to 
get into monk mode. Mm. That's probably my example of the only time at the moment where I'm in pure monk mode because you've got a deadline. So you have to make progress and you can't have any interruptions. You need to just sit and really focus. And so actually by setting out almost just more of a time going right from nine to 12, all I'm going to do in that time is write. And actually, it's incredible the progress that you make. You really do, though, don't you? Yeah. And then you come away just thinking, OK, well, imagine if I did that more often and in more different scenarios. Yeah. And I do think your point about open plan offices is really interesting because I guess most of our listeners will sit in now a broadly open plan office. There's not many offices Everyone. I go into now. And they're always assumed to be a good thing. And I think they are in terms of sociability, people being able to kind of chat to each other. What I think they're not great for is productivity yeah i chatted to a guy from radio one and radio one's open plan now and he said we used to be in a horrible building it was like little cubby holes it was six to eight people in them but what you'd find is each one was like a little tribe so they'd all have their own music on and so people would wander from cubby hole to cubby hole and occasionally chat to you and say oh what are you playing he said now we've moved to an open plan floor where everyone listens to the radio station but the end result of that is that we'd all recognise this. A lot of people put headphones on. Mm-hmm. And so you get this sort of doubled bind, really, where not only are people being interrupted all the time, but to escape those interruptions, they're putting headphones yeah. on. And so the end result is there's just less free flow of chat. In fact, you know, you mentioned sort of open plan offices being more sociable. But in fact, all the evidence suggests people end up hating their colleagues and uh, becoming <laughs> well, less... because you're just like, I can't escape. You, you, just because, you, you know, you're sitting there and someone will come in and, and ask a, right. a question and then someone and else will... get frustrated will, almost. Get frustrated okay. And it manifests as annoyance with people. That's interesting. And actually in the book, which we won't go into now because it's good to leave a few things for people to read for themselves, there's a really good section on headphones, I thought. Yeah. Because it's quite a controversial topic. Yeah. Do um, you agree with my take on it? I do. Okay. I do. Okay, so okay, I think okay. we should leave that one for okay, people to read okay, in the okay. book. But I do. and I Because yeah. I have a real mixed starting point on it. But your conclusion in terms of what you recommend... I'm sort of on board yeah. with. So. And that's it. And look, it's not an easy thing to no. navigate, but I think, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll leave Definitely that read it. Teaser. Read the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the thing I have done this year, which is one of the other things that you recommend, is I have turned off all of my notifications. Okay. How did that go? Do you know what? It's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I turned off so WhatsApp, Instagram, LinkedIn, <gasps> Twitter, sorry, or email. So do I, don't worry. Yeah, okay, you're allowed to do that. Yeah. And initially... What I realised is I was used to a behaviour where I was flitting between things really quickly. So it's insane. For no apparent reason, I'd flit between WhatsApp to LinkedIn to Twitter and actually not really focus or actually even read any of the things on those platforms, all of which I like. I find all of those platforms interesting for different reasons, but I wasn't really engaging with any of them properly. I think I was just trying to do about six things at Mm. once. So I've turned them all off. And now what I find, which perhaps you'll talk about in terms of things like the cortisol and things, is I really enjoy going into the apps and seeing what the latest update is. And then I deal with whether it's, if it's in LinkedIn, say I'll go in in the three messages, I then deal with them there and then because I tend to go in and then have a look when I've got the time to engage with the platform versus almost just getting stressed out where I think, I've got three messages, but there's nothing I can do about them until this evening anyway. Yeah. People often sort of confront me this and and say, you work at Twitter, aren't aren't you responsible for this? And far from it, I think, you know, everyone at our CEO has just gone away on a 10-day silent retreat. So Really? Yeah, so, you know, it's not like we're saying to people you need to be mainlined into this stuff all the time. But 
I think the interesting thing about all of these technologies, I remember doing a sort of presentation on this a few years ago, is they used to sit in these interstices. And it's, interstices are the gaps between things. Oh, okay. So they used to sit in these interstices. Like you'd, you'd what, find... like waiting for a bus? Exactly or... that. Precisely okay. that was the example I was going to use. So they'd fit and they were really considerate entry points there. Quite often you're sitting in a moment of boredom and they fill the gaps. I think what we've found since is the dopamine hit of everything and email can provide a dopamine hit. We see an alert, we see a number on our phone and we want to immediately go and check it and so consequently what you find is that turning off that number, turning off the alerts can just give you a bit of mental headspace. I mean I mentioned interstices there. The interesting thing is that I almost invite people to sort of make a note of when they have their ideas because here's mm-hmm. here's the interesting thing about the way the brain works. I was really I was blown oh, away I by this. this. Yeah, um, is that you know there's broadly three systems in your brain, and one of them is doing stuff, but that's called the executive attention network, and one of them is predicting stuff, and that's called the salience network. That's sort of you and me sitting here now thinking nothing unpredicted is going to happen, but if suddenly something smashes that window, it's it's yeah, okay. uh, the salience network is running those forecasts, and the final one, and the only way scientists can observe this is they tell people to. Be sort of doing something, draw something, and then they wait till they stop drawing and then they observe. And the other one's called the default network. And it's pretty much our daydreaming network. It's when we're doing nothing. And what most people find, and, you know, there's no shortage of people who've written it, that people's best ideas tend to come in the default network, not in the other ones. And so think about that. So you're walking somewhere and you have an idea. You're having a shower and you have an idea. It came to me in the bath or it came to me stepping into the bath. And our ideas tend to come in those things. So while I say that technology used to fit into the interstices, but actually it's quite often the interstices where the gaps between things, where our creative ideas happen. So we don't want to cram creativity out of some of these spaces. Yeah, and I think giving yourself permission to not be efficient the whole time yeah and to daydream i really like something called the idler academy i don't know if you've come across yeah, it but I did. essentially what tom's doing one of the founders there is he's sort of encouraging you to be idle mm. some of the time and i i really find that particularly with things like going for a walk i love coming up with ideas as uh, helen knows because she then gets the brunt of that i come up with ideas send them to helen and say this would be interesting do something with this but if i looked at those whatsapp messages she gets from me they're often as i'm coming off a train at the end of a walk maybe even lasting in the evening as I'm kind of going upstairs before I go to bed. Probably the best person who'd taken time to think about how ideas happen is a guy called James Webb Young, and I sort of summarise uh, yeah. his methodology. Very famous. his book's really old, That's isn't right. it? But someone it's once like... recommended to me when I first started in marketing. It's like 1939, What I is think. it, a technique for producing ideas? Yes, right. Is that right? And it's like, it'll cost you the price of a coffee on... Yeah. on and we'll put uh, all the links Kindle. at the end of the podcast yeah. like we always do for everyone. And I I plunder that, I print his methodology. But his methodology is sort of astonishingly simple, but I guarantee it works. His system is like you spend a long time researching and looking into something and you sort of, you write down that. Then the second stage is you spend time trying to think of connections between those things. How would that work with that? How would that work with that? And he said, these two things, because they're quite laborious, you need to get into a state of flow with them. A lot of people don't do them properly. The third stage of his process, this uh, published book and like a, a regard, is do nothing. Is go... Almost sit with it. Go to sleep, go for a walk. And he said, the idea will come to you. Yeah. And it seems... Takes quite a lot of confidence almost to do that, doesn't it? I know. But, you know, that's why I say to people, keep a diary of when you have your best ideas. That's a good idea. 
because they generally don't come when you're staring at a screen. Yeah. So if you're there, you know, to contextualise it for you, but you're there writing a book and you need an idea for another chapter, staring at the screen is probably the worst thing you can do. You know, you're far better to invest a bit of time thinking of things that you're interested in, thinking of connections, and then going for your yeah. uh, famed walks and things like that to, 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 to find the idea. I think Helen's now a bit like, can you just warn me when you go for these walks? Because, you know, there's only so much capacity in a day. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So that was Recharge. And let's move on to Sync. So the thing that I think everybody will look at in terms of an action in Sync and everyone will dream of, but perhaps wonder whether it could ever be a reality, is halving your meetings. And certainly I've worked in lots of big PLCs and over time got to the point where certainly I would have some days where you'd look at your diary and all you were doing was meetings. And there was actually no time. I didn't even know how I was going to make it from one meeting to the next on time because they were so they were actually back to back. And I think lots of people will recognise that or certainly feel like they have way too many meetings and probably feel like it's a bit out of their control to do yeah. anything about it. So what, that, what would you say around that? Yeah, and that's why I say if all that happens is you buy one copy of this book and you photocopy one chapter and you and you sort of you know what, strategically hand, place it around. And no, no, and you <laughs> hand, no, no. But I, I'm convinced that a bit of evidence and a passionate person can change the culture because I think that the way that you've described things is exactly right. There was a change in childcare a few years ago where there was a recognition that children were being overscheduled. Children's leisure was being overscheduled, where kids were coming out of school going to gymnastics, then going to soccer class and then going to art. And one of the things it was the enemy of was of personal development and creativity. And I think we're just at the very start of that for work where people are going to say, unfortunately now, the optics of work are such that if someone looks in your diary, if someone comes up to your diary and you've got nothing in all day, people will say... You're not working. Not working. 
You're not yeah. working. And the moment we spend time thinking about what contributes and what creates our work, the better. So one of the guys that I talk about a lot is a guy called Alex Pentland, who did some pioneering work at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And it's only in the last two or three years he's worked. But he put these badges around people's necks. Yeah, I know, it's fascinating yeah, reading it really in a book. Yeah. And it's the sort of analysis that we're now familiar with seeing sports stars, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's what we, it reminded me of, that's yeah. Right. We see heat maps of a sports game and we think, oh, yeah, that's where all the players were. They're all around the box. They were doing that. Or you watch tennis and you, you watch where the ball's been distributed. But strangely, for the amount of time that we spend on it and for the fact that it produces all everything in the economy, no one had done this in the office. Well, he changed that, so he did that. And what he found was it was just like this compelling data set where he said, right, it turns out meetings are in service of something, but they're not creating what happens in an office. Because when you get rid of the number of meetings, actually the amount of productivity doesn't change. It's mm. about 2% contribution. Similarly, emails are about 2% contribution. Right. And so this sort of heat map of what was going on is about 40% of what happens, productivity in an office, comes from face-to-face chat, people chatting to each other. Now, back to that sporting metaphor, imagine if you were watching what was going on on the pitch and you were saying, this is taking up 16 hours of 40 a week, these meetings. Yeah. or uh, As a minimum, probably. Yeah, and yet there's no output to it. Any coach in that situation would be going, hang on, so we think we can get a competitive advantage by reducing the amount of time in meetings. And that's why I'm convinced that a passionate person with evidence can change things. Because any boss, bosses aren't like these villains where they're determined yeah. to lock people in meeting rooms. I hope rooms. not, because I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like if someone presents a case saying, guys, here's what we're going to try and do. Here's our mission. We're going to reduce the meeting time that we have by half. That's it. And so consequently, we want you to document for us if you feel more productive, if you get more done. Are you getting to the bottom of your action points? Are you coming up with better ideas? And that's it. Yeah. I'm convinced that you go through that and people will come out of it going, actually, I'm more successful. There's a, a guy I'm sort of eternally in his debt and one of the, the best workplace thinkers, a guy called Sir Carry Cooper. And he works out of the Business Centre in Manchester University, but just an inspiring, brilliant guy. And he did this experiment where he went into a workplace and he said to one workplace, we're closing down your emails for Fridays and there's no meetings on Fridays. And he went back and he asked them how it was affecting their interactions with each other, their enjoyment of work. And people were just like, you can't make us go back to the old world. You can't make us go back to what we have before. You have a rebellion. That's right. So based on that, we know meetings are achieving nothing. We know that most of us kind of resent meetings. If you ask people why they do them, people consider them like a taxation, mm. like something that is something you you'll never get do. rid of, but you've got to do them. So as soon as you enter that, you say, OK, I wonder if we could set about halving the amount of meetings we're doing. We're not getting rid of them full stop, but could we shorten them? Could we half the amount of time we're spending them? And I think once you enter with that mentality, I hear what you're saying that it feels daunting at the outset, but you enter with that mentality and it is something that you can change. One of the things actually they did at Sainsbury's, which I always thought was really smart, was to challenge you on how long a meeting had to be. So you know inevitably when you go into your calendar to arrange a meeting, there's often like a bit of an automatic prompt to be, oh, it should be 30 minutes or it should be an hour. Why can't a meeting be 10 minutes? 
why can't a meeting be 20 minutes? This is why I, I, I completely agree with you. Quite often, the reason for a meeting is you just want to chat to Sarah about something. Yeah. And if every time you wanted to chat with someone, it had to be 30 minutes, it would become a daunting thing. You know, those interruptions in the office will be like, I'm not going to chat to anyone because, you know, I don't want to commit to 30 minutes of this. And that's why I love... So in sync, one of the things that I talk about is the way that a lot of businesses have found their way that even though paradoxically I believe in the cause of abolishing meetings, I'm very in favour of social meetings. And social meetings are this weird thing where you get people together, often where there's specifically no intended objective or output. There's a lot of business school people who say that meetings need an agenda and need action points. And what you find is that I encountered so many businesses who'd created a social meeting, sometimes with a rough agenda sometimes with no agenda and what the upside of it the benefit is that by just getting people into a space socially quite often I'll come over and I'll have that two minute chat I was intending to have with you and it's only a two minute chat but it feels light and airy and we've done something productive that me wandering over to you saying oh just quick one I just want a quick word about what we're doing about Manchester and you immediately we've solved it we've decided what we're going to do and we move on our way The only reason I put it in there is so many businesses told me that almost embarrassedly they discovered that this was a really energising way to reorganise their office. So the power of a social meeting is in service of trying to make you feel more connected. Yeah, and I guess it also might connect to people feeling trusted and a kind of sense of belonging. So we've talked before on the podcast about things like psychological safety. And I can imagine actually... One of the reasons I was thinking that I wouldn't want to sort of stop having some meetings is I feel like they create a sense of trust and bond between those people, even if they're not super productive. But actually that trust and bond is probably helpful in its own right in terms of creating safety. Look, the future work is how about? So how about you tried? Here's what we do. At three o'clock on Wednesday, we all go and gather by those sofas. And that's what you do. And so consequently, you all go and gather by the sofas and you work together for an hour. You're just sitting near each other, working together for an hour. And so immediately, if you need to chat to two people there, you get them in a huddle. Just a quick one, we we want to do this. So trying things and and doing how about and, and and, and trying different things out. Yes, the reason why sometimes there is a benefit of meetings is that you want a time when you can definitely chat to Mark. Yeah. And you know that if you try and arrange it today, his diary's crammed, but his diary has no overlaps that work with your diary. And so what you do is you immediately schedule something that then somehow develops a life of its own. It's like a child that you never wanted. (laughs) And suddenly it's got an agenda to it. And all you wanted was a time that you can definitely chat to Mark each week. Mm -hmm. And immediately it's become this thing where, what's the plan for this week's meeting? Oh, we're going to get this person to come and chat to us. And immediately you've basically created bureaucracy. And all of us, when presented with the idea of bureaucracy, hate it, but find ourselves facilitating it and and continuing it. So the more you can, I think, think of different ways of doing things. And, you know, all we're doing is we're huddling each week for an hour. Yeah. And if you can't join us, no worries. But, you know, try and make the time on the calendar for it. And maybe just think about different ways to be productive, but still get the benefit of sync. Yeah, I think it's encouraging everybody listening to... Think about what assumptions you maybe have about how you have to work and the way in which you work and challenge and almost ask yourself why. And if you can't think of a really good reason why, 
think about how might we or what might we try and do differently. Yeah. There's a really interesting thing, and, and I know you sort of, you're interested in careers, and, and one of the challenges you find about careers is the, the recruitment process is so inexpert. And so I was chatting to a recruitment expert for my own podcast last week, and he said the thing about recruiting and, and interviewing is that we struggle to measure what people are like. But the reason why we struggle is because we don't know how good people are in their jobs. Yeah. And here's the it's crazy thing. It's a fake scenario. Right. So, so we don't even know how good the people we employ are. How can you assess the people you don't yet employ? It's just you're guessing. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's because none of us actually measure what happens at work. We all sort of, we play mum and dad a bit. Mm. We go to a meeting where we're all looking serious and someone's produced some slides and they're lovely slides and then we all talk about something and we go away and we feel like in the game of mum and dad, we sort of did a good job of being adults. Whereas if you try and start with the other point saying, what are we producing here? Did we produce more of it? It changes your take on what you do in, in a working environment. Yeah, and one of the things in sync that I was interested in because it's something I think I do and certainly I know I value for myself and it might be something people are surprised to kind of hear about is to know when to leave people alone. And I think I'm very much an introvert and we've talked before about the work that Susan Cain has done on quiet and actually often it's extroverts who sometimes impose more of the workplace behaviours. Certainly the when I started work, it felt like you had to be an extrovert to succeed. So I sort of just tried to fake being an extrovert for quite a few years till I finally got a bit more comfortable that maybe it was okay that that wasn't me um, and that brought other kind of advantages. And what I liked about the kind of idea of leaving people alone is one of the things that we hear time and time again that's a really big barrier for people is the thing people hate the most about their bosses is feeling micromanaged. And that comes up time and time again, to the point where I'm almost fascinated that it still happens. Mm. Because I think if you're a boss, you're also saying that about your boss. Because everybody works for somebody. And so what I can't quite get my head around is, I don't know anyone who wants to be micromanaged. Everyone sort of wants to be left alone, but feels supported at the same time. And yet it probably doesn't happen as much as people want. It feels like it's a really big bugbear for lots of people that I talk to and coach. So what, what do you think gets in the way? Yeah, I think, you know, the challenge of micromanagement and where effectively sort of people are just no autonomy. They're robbed of the autonomy to do to do the, the job in the, the way they want. I think, you know, it's because the whole of work is in service of this. But we tend to take autonomy from people and we infantilise them. And so, yeah. you know, so from setting times that people need to be in the office to what we want back from them, we infantilise them. And then the consequence of that is that when they sort of resist and don't do these things, we, we provide them. yeah, we provide stringent rules. Yeah. And if you compare the way college education and universities go, where if you don't submit something, you're going to get a bad score for it, but no one's chasing yeah, you. Yeah, if you don't turn up to your lectures. you don't turn up, up to your you. lectures, it's entirely up to you. So someone will check in on you if you miss three or four seminars or whatever, because they'll say you're going to fail this term. But no one's parenting you. Whereas work, in in contrast, doesn't work like that. Work is far more laid down by rules and, and regulations. I checked someone who... Uh, used to be the foreign correspondent of the Times newspaper. She's just left, actually. And uh, she mm, said... Fascinating job. I know. And she said her dream job was the few years she was the Times correspondent in Rome. She said, imagine this, you know, I would get up in the morning, I would check the news, I would go and meet someone who was a contact, a source, 
I would go and have a coffee with them. I would wander the streets and then I would file a piece of copy. Sounds perfect. I know. I would try and file a piece of copy every day. Then after she'd been done with a sort of tour of duty in Italy, she came back to the UK. She was told she had to be in by 9.30. She was given a seat just by the toilets. If she wasn't in her seat, her boss would say to her, where are you? And you can see the two worlds. One is one where you're inviting someone to file copy. And she had to file twice a week. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she was aiming to file every day. But you imagine that's going to be colourful, characterful Mm -hmm. and filled with the sense of the place. And to contrast that with what she was asked to do and she was sitting at a desk in sort of Wapping or wherever it is, it's going to be like this dead, inert, lifeless copy. And I think through other people's jobs we can see this. We can see that, you know, if someone said to you, create the circumstances that you want this to be done, you can see it. But quite often when we're in our own work environments, I say in there, a guy gave me the metaphor. He said he hates himself for it, but he becomes an evil mill owner. He becomes someone who, if the people aren't working in the mill at nine o'clock, he asks himself, where are they? You know, he wants to know why they're not back from lunch at two. There's just things that go through your head that create pernicious thoughts about the working environment. And the more we can remove ourselves from that, thinking about what's the job people need to do, the better, I think. Yeah, and if you're really interested in that parent-adult-child behaviour, there's a really good book called Coaching for Toads that uses wind in the willows as an analogy for what is called within coaching transactional analysis. Okay. And it talks about the language that sometimes we use at work and that how you end up treating people as if they were kids, basically. Maybe using okay. language like, oh, be good. If you were about to go on holiday as a manager, and you might be saying it slightly tongue-in-cheek, but even by saying that kind of language, that actually has an implication in terms of who else do you say be good to? Kids. Kids. And so it's just, that's, um, it's really fascinating. So let's move on to Buzz. The thing I loved in Buzz, which I've done a bit of before, but it reminded me of something I did when I was in a particular job, was this idea of pre-mortems. So um, for a couple of years, I moved out of marketing and worked in corporate affairs. And actually, corporate affairs people, I found, are very good at pre-mortems because essentially it's this idea of asking at the start of any project rather than at the end, what could go wrong? Mm. Which sounds quite negative, but I think if you work in, say, a press office or in public affairs or those kind of areas, part of your role is to have really great judgment about all of the shades of grey. Yes, what could go right, but equally, what could go wrong? What could go really wrong? and almost doing scenario planning. And I like the fact you talked about actually just the benefits of doing this more frequently rather than I think we often wait till the end. Yeah, you know, we, we all wait till the end of a project and then we're like, right, what went really well? What should we learn for next time? Actually, could you fast forward a lot of that learning? And I think you gave some really good examples of people who've done that and then just how much better those projects were. Yeah, absolutely. I witnessed it firsthand at Twitter. The, obviously, if you're doing something so, you know, Twitter app is used by 330 million people. and um, That's a scary number. I know. If they change <laughs> something on it, we used to use this expression, which is if there's half a billion tweets every day, that means a one in a million issue happens, a one in a million event right. happens. Oh, okay, yeah, because your scale is so big. Those 500 times a day. Right. And so what happens in that scenario is you've created something and you've conceived of something and, and you're like, okay, if someone does this... And then what happens, where that goes wrong, is you don't infer malicious intent. And so, you know, if you think about the the way that social media has been used, that no one with a benign 
aspect would look at it and go, okay, well, no, no one would think of doing that, but you need to conceive of that. And so a pre-mortem is you going through the, the motions of saying what could go wrong. Yeah. And look, it's n- what you shouldn't do with a pre-mortem is let it be the sort of the enemy of change. You, you mm. shouldn't use it as a reason not to do anything because there's a danger if you're excessively cautious, then you just stay in the house. You, know, you never do anything. But just planning through what can go wrong can be a really powerful creative process of just getting different ideas, really. And I actually remember sitting in Sainsbury's in what was quite a formal boardroom style of meeting um, with lots of people in it, probably way too many people in it because it was a very kind of collaborative culture. And I was leading a, quite an innovative project on food waste. And you know what? The way I got that project to progress was asking everyone in that room to try and kill it. And the reason I was doing that, because it was such a diverse group of people from operations to retailers to people in the supply chain, was going, OK, this is the idea. You tell me all the reasons now why this is not going to work. But by doing that, everybody built a much better wow. solution. Um, and that's one of the projects I'm, I'm always really proud of. But the reason I think that was so good was because we did that at the very start. And I remember thinking, this is a brave thing to do. This feels like quite a different sort of meeting. I think the reason I was brave is I got a really great manager and she was in the room. So I sort of thought, do you know what? Even if this goes really wrong, I know she's sort of got my back. So it gave me the confidence to have a go. OK, I wonder if as well, there's something that Daniel Kahneman talks about, which is um, that we are far more inclined to to feel losses than gains. So, you know, if you okay. if, if I give you... Fifty pounds, and then tell you you could lose it. Your behaviour is very different to me telling you you could win fifty pounds. Yeah, very different behaviour. We sort of we're very protective, and I wonder if by saying, "Tell me how this could fail," you're making people root for it. You're making people feel, yeah, what a brilliant, what a brilliant. Yeah, I like example. to think I'm just that smart. I know, I love it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to take from that one. <laughs> and actually, kind of linked to that, the thing that I came out of Buzz thinking that I've done actually particularly over the past six or seven years since I've been in bigger leadership jobs, is admitting where you've messed up. So admitting where you've gone wrong. I really don't believe in the idea of anyone is perfect, that any leader has some sort of magic formula or magic wand where they're kind of this perfect combination of a person that means they're able to lead just so brilliantly. And I'm a big fan of kind of Brenny Brown's work on vulnerability. And certainly I found by talking to teams about using your strengths, so talking about my own strengths and and how they'll be useful in any team situation, but also then saying, and conversely, there are some things I'm not so good at, or this is where you'll find that I maybe get a bit stressed or I've struggled a little bit, or if actually you just go wrong, you know, something happens and it didn't go that well, actually just talking about that openly, showing that you're vulnerable, talking about what you've learned. I think when I first started doing that, it felt really scary because, you know, you're trying to lead a team and you feel accountability and you feel like people are maybe looking up to you to role model behaviours. But what I found is what you're then doing is actually role modelling the behaviours that you expect of other people. Because one of the things I often remind people of is somehow I think we set ourselves standards that then we don't expect of other people. Right. Yeah. So I don't expect anyone that works with me, works for me to be perfect. But often people do expect that of yeah. themselves or feel like they maybe need to put a barrier up to expect that of themselves. And so I think that's... The most compelling leaders, I think, are the people that increasingly the next generation of people coming into work will want to follow will be the people, I think, who could admit they're not perfect. Yeah. 
and and you're in good company. Uh, you know, well, after your by fa- not being perfect. Well, Thanks. no, no, no. But you know, by by <laughs> by admitting failures. So I was I had the good fortune to chat to someone who was in sort of the British elite military. In oh, fact, yeah. he asked me not to talk about what part of the military he was in. Yeah, because you said you, you're not allowed to because yeah, it's so yeah. confidential. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so he, he was discussing that with me and he was describing something called a hot debrief, which is at the end of every day they've just done a an action, they've been out in the field somewhere and they'll gather together immediately when they're still sweating with a kit on and they'll talk about what they did that day. And he goes through, he describes what happened and then he says what he did wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm fascinated with the vulnerability thing. The thing I find hard with it is that people don't know specifically what action they're meant to be taking. Yeah. And so the more you can say, it is this. So him saying, admit what you did wrong. Or there was a wonderful example. So the idea of psychological safety comes from the work of a professor called Amy Edmondson. And psychological safety is sort of the, you know, in, in short terms. You can make terms. mistakes. And, yeah, and the, yeah. the willingness to speak up to the boss and yeah. admit what's going wrong. And, you know, you feel as protected as you would feel in a family environment, I guess, is probably the, the way you would describe it. And the she looked at surgical teams. She went into in-depth in one paper, surgical teams who were just doing open-heart surgery for with a new methodology. And she contrasted these hospitals where the old methodology was cracking open your rib cage. The new methodology was going between a rib, but it meant that no one in the team could see what was happening. So imagine this, you're doing an operation on a body in front of you where one of the outcomes is the patient dies. You know, it's it's literalised from death. But what they found was if the surgeon wore a camera on his head that had no benefit for him but had benefit for other people, and if the surgeon was asking, guys, how's, how are you feeling? this, And if he modelled vulnerability and he modelled his own infallibility, the outcome was the teams were far more successful. They, they ended up succeeding at doing it rather than failing it. And the surgeons where they were sort of these masters of the universe who didn't want to have a camera because there was no benefit for them and they were just instructing how to get on with it, those teams often failed with the new system and abandoned it. And so you had this weird thing. If you looked at people who were in the successful teams, they would say about their surgeon, you know what, it just it doesn't matter how stupid the question, he's really happy to answer it. And we're allowed to ask anything we want. That was what the successful teams looked like. The unsuccessful teams were, if you do something wrong, that guy bites your head off. Mm-hmm. And so that's, so, you know, when we're sitting there and we're thinking what the future of work looks like and what good working cultures look like, it's this thing where imperfection and someone saying, I'm not even sure what I'm doing here, guys, is what the the shape of success looks like. Yeah, and I think that links so closely to Carol Dweck's work around growth mindset, mm. which we're massive fans of, yeah. and this idea of going... Everybody's always growing, learning. There's no such thing as being done. There's no point where you go, well, that's it, I'm done now. I am come out of the perfect factory. And I guess people will only feel kind of vulnerable and be prepared to talk about their weaknesses or maybe some things they're not so good at. I think if they see people more senior than them doing it, I think it's a big ask for people to do that if you're not seeing that from people you work for. I loved Carol Dweck's work. I'd love if it was a bit more accessible, though. That yeah. book I found so Her TED Talk's hard. really good. He, he agreed. Yeah. But the book itself reads like a textbook. Yeah, well, I think she's... Um, she's an academic. Super academic, yeah, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. So she's, she's oh. brilliant. But there's one really good infographic that has been produced which sort of talks about the difference uh, okay. between growth and fixed mindset. 
but that's sort of it in terms of accessibility. Right, I, okay. I mean, because I was thinking I want the cartoon strip version. Yeah, I yeah. want like the really easy version. Yeah, but I think it is fascinating. It was originally designed, wasn't it? Uh, the tests were done actually with kids and with yeah. children. But I think as more workplaces start to use that to influence how they recruit, how they develop people. I know that Microsoft, where Helen worked for a number of years, they actually recruit people based on growth mindset and that's how your performance is wow, appraised. Okay. So people are starting to take it really seriously. I know their chief exec talks about it. So I can't believe there's not some academics out there going, oh, how do we apply this in a work right. context? Because it'd be a smart thing to do. Right. So of all those 30 actions, Bruce... Which one have you taken and that's had the most impact? Um, most of them, like, I was very keen to do, you know, it's things like reclaiming your lunch break, I think. Is, yeah. I try, especially when I've been sort of uh, writing a book, I try to at least do something different. So, in fact, preparing for my podcast, I often go and sit in the park and read a book for 30 minutes or try and just do something to refresh myself and, and step away from my desk. The one I'm so completely compelled by is the power of laughter and yeah. so i tell you why it's because we've all got this subjective experience that we like laughing you know actually there are societies around the world where laughter isn't invited but we sort of love laughing and i was really taken with researching that and you know there's not a lot of research on laughter you know the, the people who've done the research say that I think there's 75,000 peer-reviewed papers on anxiety and there's about 30 on laughter. Oh, that's almost uh, sad, isn't it? <laughs> I know, because they consider it, it's a bit frivolous. It's like, yeah. why are you doing it? But the leading expert on laughter, a guy called Robert Provine, and he said, when you deconstruct what laughter is, it's a bonding mechanism. So it often signals that no, no harm will happen here or it's a way of bringing groups together in affinity. So he goes around and he tracked people... And he noticed that when people were laughing, it's often not something that's funny that's happened before it. It might be notionally funny. You know, people have done it in service of being funny, but it's not funny. No third party would listen and laugh. But he calls it an impoverished bird song. He said, basically, it's like when birds sing together, it's because they're trying to signal that they're together. And when humans laugh, it's exactly the same. And so, mm. right, you start looking at that and then you go, OK, so what does it do? Increases our creativity. You put people in, in a room together and make them laugh. They're more creative. It bonds. It creates a sense of affiliation. It improves their sync. So you'd like laughter, a bit like sleep, is like this magical human thing that just pretty much improves everything it yeah. touches. But how often in workplaces do we optimise to reduce laughter? One place I used to work, they would say, can you not talk on the, the office floor? Because oh, right. it, yeah, and so you know you've engineered something where you're sort of depriving yourself of this magical thing, really. I was just thinking there as you're talking about sleep and laughter, and reflecting on having an 18 month old toddler who I think I've laughed more than I've ever laughed since having him, but I think I've slept, slept less. less than I've ever slept. <laughs> yeah. So I can't work out whether he nets out at being an okay investment or not. Maybe just about he's sleeping slightly better, so he's I, tipping I, over. I, I mean, but laughter is <laughs> so joyful, isn't it? And yeah, you can witness it sort of makes it. up for it, to be honest. You can, witness, yeah, you can witness it in that situation where you feel just so unburdened of everything. And so often we sort of, we have a bit of serious face when we're in the office. Yeah. We think that success is being earnest and meaning business. And we, we're removing ourselves from just like a real free pleasure in life. Yeah, and I guess if you look at people like Richard Branson, he seems like he's having quite a lot of fun, mm. to be honest, and laughing quite a lot. Mm. Helen used to work for Virgin, and she said he genuinely 
like wants to enjoy his work. Oh. And so he kind of takes the idea of like having fun and kind of laughing really seriously. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. So we're going to review Bruce's book on Instagram TV in February. So you'll be able to hear us do all of the ins and outs of what we both think. Helen hasn't read it yet because it's only out yesterday. So she's got a week or so to uh, get through her 30 actions. And we'll use the feedback mechanism we always use. And we've talked about on the podcast before what went well about the book and our kind of even better ifs. If you are reading now and you want to know uh, some of my initial impressions, here's what I loved about the book. There were three things I thought were really great. One, it's really easy to digest. As I just mentioned, an 18-month toddler does not leave you loads of time for reading. So I actually managed to read the book in three days. And that was kind of in between a bit of him sleeping, a few little car journeys. And you can read each of the actions individually and they all make sense in isolation. And they all make sense uh, when you read them together. So very achievable and realistic as a read. Personally, I really like the fact it's backed up by evidence and people who know their stuff. As Bruce was talking about earlier, if you're trying to impact some of this change for yourself and with others, I think having some of this evidence, I know personally there were things where I was thinking, that's going to be really great for me to share with others because, and it's not just me saying it's a really good idea because I really believe in lots of this stuff. But I think sometimes think, oh, you know, Sarah's like drank the Kool-Aid. Whereas I thought, right, this is going to help me prove it's not just me, which I liked. And the last one, which I think is a really important one and not always the case with these kind of business books is, for me, this was for everyone. So this hasn't been written for people at a certain level, in a certain industry or in a certain role. These are things that I think are everyday actions that everyone listening will take something from and we will post on Instagram and we would actually love to hear the actions that you are taking so what we'd really encourage you to do is share with us what actions uh, you've done out of the 30 and I'm sure Bruce will get involved in that conversation as well and we always do an even better if as well which is actually more intimidating when Bruce is uh, sitting right across from me but actually to the point on Carol Dweck and making things accessible one of the things I really craved by the time I was getting to the end of the book as I was thinking not everyone will invest the time to read a book. You know, I know that writing a book, I'm sure uh, Bruce had that same experience. So I was thinking I'd love some sort of infographic or checklist that brings these 30 things to life in a way that means almost back to that point on evidence, it's something that you could share. I know you've done your manifesto, which I think is sort of in that, guys. I sort of wanted a the next iteration of your manifesto. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, like you sit there and you finish this and you think, I either want like worksheets that people yeah. can do and I think you know that's my feeling when it comes to sort of my own podcast and website is I want to I've said before take a chapter and photocopy it and rip it out but you know maybe creating things where if one passionate person is given 30 minutes on their away day how can they use yes. that 30 minutes to provoke a change so I think that's what I'm going to I feel like I've next. given you an action as a result of coming on the podcast. Um, if people want to buy the book, where can they get it from? It's out via Penguin Random House, so it's in, in bookshops and all those websites. Okay, cool. And if you do buy it, please take the time to let Bruce know what you think. I know he'd really welcome your feedback. Please make sure you leave reviews and those kind of things because that sort of stuff really does support people who are trying to do really great work in this area. And as we always say, if you want to get in touch with us on Instagram, we're at Amazing If. We're on Twitter, which is, I, feel, I feel really good about right now, at Amazing underscore If. And you can always email us, find us on LinkedIn. We're going to be posting quite a few bits about the book and we really want people to engage with it. Tell us what actions have worked for you. Tell us what actions haven't worked. If you've tried stuff out and it hasn't quite worked, let us know that as well because they think this is all about experimenting. As sort of Bruce talked about earlier in the podcast, this is about giving things a go, challenging things for yourself and kind of taking those small actions. 
thank you so much for listening as always back to normal service next week so Helen will be back um, but thanks so much Bruce for this week it's been brilliant thank you Anana. thank you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 